for him to be one-on-one with this woman. Uh, In our ministry, we have to be careful, especially as men or as women. Uh, But more than being careful, we have to be people of integrity. And the way to be a holy person of integrity is to make sure that our life truly is daily drawing on that eternal well, where we are daily drinking of Jesus' presence and goodness. And we have a, a soul that is being fed and nourished and filled. Uh, if not, all the boundaries in the world will not keep you from, at the very least, wanting to do evil, wanting to do wrong, desiring, wanting to fill your life with the things of the world that you know are wrong. You may not take the steps to do it. You may keep yourself well within those boundaries. But in your heart, if you're thirsty, you're thirsty. And if you're trying to fill that thirst with the things of the world, your mind will constantly be rushing to those things. And, uh, and when you find yourself uh, caught as Jesus was alone with the woman, you may instinctively feel guilty. Not because of anything you did, but because of what you know you thought. But for Jesus, there was none of that. He was pure. He was a man of great character and integrity. And he had to explain nothing. And I love it. The disciples come, and they were, it says they were shocked. They were shocked, but none of them said a word. And Jesus felt not the least little uh, inkling or uh, was not the least bit compelled to explain to them, oh, well, I, was, I, was, I was witnessing to this girl. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't say a word. Because he's pure. His conscience is clean. He has nothing to defend or explain. And he doesn't live to please men. He doesn't care about his reputation before men. He lives to be in obedience with the Father. Well, in this context, Jesus... Um, really explains how this is his perfect job. Um, first, point, first point, though, uh, the mark of a true follower. It's significant that this woman um, leaves, it says she leaves her water pot and runs back to the city. Um, one of the, in, the, in the Gospel of John, one of the great marks of a true follower is that true followers become immediately witnesses. Immediately, when this woman recognizes Jesus as the Messiah and understands what he's talking about, she immediately becomes a witness. She doesn't go through a 15-week discipleship program. She doesn't go to Bible college. She doesn't read the the Bible from, from front to back first. First thing she does is she goes and she witnesses what she has encountered in Jesus. It says she leaves her water pot. She rushes back to the city. And this is a woman who probably went to the well by herself because she had a bad reputation and nobody hung out with her. But that doesn't stop her. And the, the way it describes it is that she goes into the middle of the city and she tells everybody. I don't know if she like stands up on a you know, the city park somewhere and starts screaming this or she's just running around street by street telling people. But soon the whole city, the whole town comes out to see Jesus. She shares this with everybody. I met a guy who told me everything I ever did, I think I found the Messiah. I think this is the promised one. Uh, She becomes instantly uh, a witness. Uh, This is true throughout the book of John. Uh, In chapter 1, we see this, where uh, as soon as they discover Jesus, immediately they begin bringing others to Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist points Andrew to Jesus. Andrew brings uh, brings Peter. Peter and Andrew bring Philip. Then Philip brings Nathaniel. Uh, a mark of a true disciple is one who's a witness. Interestingly, in the story, kind of the parallel story with this account of Nicodemus, Nicodemus doesn't become a witness. 
Nicodemus does not proclaim, at this point, does not proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. And the implication there is that that Nicodemus didn't get it. He didn't become a true follower who acknowledged Jesus as the Christ. It's interesting that this woman gives a twofold witness, which I think is true for all of us. Uh, First of all, she explains what Jesus did for her. Uh, One of the most powerful things about our witness is just simply what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Has Jesus done anything for you? Raise your hand. If Jesus has done something for you, okay, then you have a witness, okay? And it's very simple. And the great thing is, you know, people can argue about whether or not the Bible is inspired, if God is real, if there's, you know, a creator, da-da-da-da. They can't argue with your experience. If you were healed, they can't can't deny that. If you have been uh, delivered from the burden of sin and you've experienced the freedom of being forgiven... Uh, they can't argue with that. Okay, they can't argue with your experience. They may not believe it's for them, but our witness is a powerful thing of how God has changed and encountered and transformed our life. And that's what she does. She says simply, he told me everything I ever did, which is not exactly true. He didn't give a whole account of her life. But certainly Jesus hit the nail on the head when it came to the, uh, what her life was really about. He nailed her. He uh, was the light of the world that exposed her to the truth of the gospel. And that's what she was saying. He uh, exposed my life with the light of his truth. Uh, And then the second part of her witness, she says simply, uh, I think he's the Messiah. Could this this not be the Messiah? Uh, Which is the truth and the conclusion that she had come to. And she proclaims that. Who Jesus is. He's the one sent from God to save the world the promised one of the Old Testament. So that's the mark of a true follower, one who is a witness. Um, Then the story kind of unfolds. In the meanwhile, while this is going on, there's two scenes happening here. She goes back to the village. She's uh, witnessing like crazy, uh, probably the world's fastest evangelism campaign. You know, she hears about Jesus. She goes to town. Twenty minutes later, there's a revival. Okay? It's awesome. And... uh, in the meantime, while she's going to town and, and having her little crusade and you know, rounding up the troops, uh, Jesus is having this very interesting conversation with his shocked disciples who are just speechless at Jesus talking to this woman. And uh, you know, they're just staring at the water jar there in the well, and finally somebody says, well, we, we have food, <laughs> which is why they went to town. Jesus, you know, why don't you eat something? And let's, let's read from there. It says, Uh, Meanwhile, verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus to eat. And Jesus said, No, I have food that you don't know about. And they asked each other, "Who, Who brought him something to eat? And Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God, who sent me, and from finishing his work. Do you think the work of harvesting will not begin um, until the summer ends four months from now? Look around you. Vast fields are ripening all around us, and are now ready for the harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one person plants and someone else harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and you will gather the harvest. Um, 
the disciples asked Jesus, you know, aren't you hungry? Here's food. We, brought, you know, we went to McDonald's. We got, we got burger. We got fries. We got Pepsi. Eat. Been on a long hike. They've been walking all morning to this point. Uh, Jesus has already acknowledged he's thirsty. He's probably tired. Most certainly, he's hungry. Uh, you know, I, I'm not one, as a general rule, to pass up food, uh, whatever it is, especially when I'm hungry. Uh, but Jesus makes an amazing statement here uh, because he wants to teach the disciples something about the greatest job ever, about the, the true meaning and significant call of our life. And so he says to them, you know, guys, I have a food you don't know of. I have food you, you don't understand or not even aware of. And, of course, the disciples are thinking, much as the woman at the well was, thinking he's talking here about literal food. And they're going, oh, man, you mean Pizza Hut delivers out here? We could have just called and had food delivered? What were we thinking? Who, who brought it? Who delivered it? Who brought you something to eat? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I'm not talking about physical, literal food. He said, my food is doing the will of him who sent me and accomplishing his work. In other words, he says, you know, guys, I have the best job in the world. He says, I love my job. My job for me is like food. In fact, it's better than food. In fact, I would give up eating to do what I do, to do the Father's will and to do the work that he's called me to. Uh, he says, there's nothing more rewarding, more fulfilling. Um, there's nothing better in my life than to do God's will. Uh, it's possible that Jesus was, was thinking of Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, verse 3, when he, when he mentions this. He quotes this in his temptation in other Gospels. It says this, Yes, God humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. God did this to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, Jesus says, my life is sustained, uh, much as the woman would, would be sustained by living water. He says, my life is sustained ultimately. I find ultimate purpose and fulfillment in, in doing God's will and finishing his work. First of all, he talks about doing God's will. And he says, he says ultimately, I was sent to do God's will. Uh, to accomplish God's purpose in this world. He says, that's what fills me. Um, that is what my life is about. Um, every one of us should ask every day this question. God, what is your will for my life today? And I think that, uh, for me anyway, oftentimes we look at God's will in terms of the big events of our life. Where we live, if we move, if we go to college, if we get married... Uh, big events. We tend to see God's will in terms of those things. And it's true that God's will certainly covers those area of our, areas of our life. But it's also true that God's will is something that we live out moment by moment every day. Uh, what was God's will for Jesus at this moment? Well, it was clearly to talk to a woman and to share with her the gospel, to give her this drink of life. That was God's will at that moment on that day. And that will superseded going to Burger King and buying lunch. Okay, the, the whole reason that Jesus didn't go into town with the, the disciples is that he had this divine appointment given according to God's will. Uh, sometimes I'm not very good at this because oftentimes my own schedule and my own priorities 
preempt God's will. Okay, because, I mean, I wrote it in my calendar, God can't mess with my calendar. And sometimes I don't handle interruptions very well. And uh, God, thankfully, Jesus is a great model of this. Uh, continually throughout the Gospel, we see him being interrupted. And he didn't see them as frustrations or annoyances. He saw them as divine appointments, part of God's call in his life to accomplish God's will. We should be daily saying, God, help me be, to be sensitive. Help me to be smart enough to see your will when it smacks me upside the head. When opportunities come into my life that aren't in my schedule or in my agenda, to know when you are calling me to, to listen to somebody, to stop for a moment and pay attention to somebody, uh, to offer help to someone who needs my help because it's your will. Uh, secondly, Jesus said that he, his food was to accomplish the work of the Father. Um, to really complete or to bring to completion God's work in the world. And uh, later he says that basically that work is to bring people to eternal life. Um, he says, that's my work, to bring, ultimately to bring people to eternal life. Uh, and the implication of this is that God is at work in the world. Uh, later in John chapter 5, we'll see this uh, in a couple weeks, John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says this. He says, I assure you, <coughs> the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, whatever work the Father is doing, the Son also does. Uh, the, the point here is that God is at work in the world. God is not passively removed, expecting us to do all the work. He didn't send Jesus into the world while he stayed back and, you know, sat on the beach and drank, uh, you know, iced tea. He is at work in the world. God is actively at work in the world. And what is the work that he's doing? Well, ultimately, it's the work of redemption. God is in the work of changing and touching people's lives to bring them to a place of salvation. And we'll see that in a minute as the story unfolds. Uh, Jesus was always about his Father's work. He was always about that ultimate mission and goal of bringing people to eternal life. Um, I really believe, and uh, it's not necessarily in this passage, but I really believe that this is the singular work of God. It is the focus of all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, focuses at the cross, which is God's work of redemption in the world. It is the one thing, above all, that God is about in the world is bringing people to himself and saving them. If it's the number one work of God, where should it be on our priority list of to-do, our, our, our to-do list? Number 10, number 20, number 399, uh, you know, share Christ with somebody and, you know, see people get saved. Well, if it's God's number one singular work in the world, it ought to be our number one singular work as well. And you may say, well, I have the gift of an evangelist. I'm not an evangelist. Well, we'll see in a minute how God does this and how we are all a part of this mission. And certainly for Jesus, he said, this is, this is my life. I would give up eating to do this. This, is such a, this for me is such a huge thing that it is like food for me. It's better than food. And my passion in life is to do this one thing, to give out this cup of water to thirsty people. He said, there is nothing better. It is really... Jesus would say the best job ever is the best job in the world to give out water, the water of life to thirsty people. And uh, 
it's, it's God's call, it's Jesus' call because that's the work of, of God in the world. Um, that kind of raises a question for some of us. All of us are doing something. Maybe you're a student in middle school or in high school or even grade school. Uh, maybe you are uh, working here in some kind of ministry. Uh, maybe you're living here uh, just to live here because it's a nice place to live. Uh, we're all here for different reasons. But according to this principle, all of us ought to be about the job and the work of bringing people to Christ. That ultimately should be the focus of our life's work uh, because it really is the best job ever. It's the one job that pays eternal fruit. Anything else you do will be very short-lived and temporary. But the work that we do that leads to and brings about people coming to Christ and becoming witnesses for Him bears fruit for eternity. And that ought to be uh, the driving call of our life. And it really is the best job ever. Um, my observation as I think about my own life, though, is that I'm involved in this work. It's something I've committed myself to. And yet, on many days, I would not say it's the best job ever. In fact, on many days, I want out of this job. And I want to be a gate guard, you know. Uh, I remember when I was pastoring uh, in, in the States, many times I thought, I just dreamed, you know, my grandfather was a truck driver. He drove his whole life millions of miles all over North America. I thought, that would be the dream job. You know, you just sit behind this truck, you see the country, you get to eat out all the time. Um, I thought, it doesn't get any better than that. And you don't have to really answer to too many people, and people aren't giving you all their problems. I thought, that's the dream job. And there are often times in our lives and in our ministry when we really don't, wouldn't say that, you know, this is our dream job. That this calling of ours to be taking the gospel to the world, you know, honestly... I talk to a lot of people who are in full-time ministry, who are uh, working, laboring for the gospel, who would honestly say, I am burned out. I am worn out. Uh, I talk to people often who are stressed, who carry these tremendous burdens, and uh, really don't enjoy it. Don't enjoy their work. Don't enjoy what they do. Uh, and it's true that on, on many days we all feel those feelings. We feel frustrated, or sometimes we even maybe just feel flat depressed that it's not working, it's not accomplishing anything. Uh, our goals aren't being met. It's too hard. And we carry this heavy weight of burden, and if you were to say, what's your dream job? It would be anything but what you're doing. It would be a truck driver, a gate guard, you know, flipping hamburgers at Mike's, Mike's Burgers. It would be anything but this hard work of bringing people to Christ in whatever role we may play in that. Well, why is that? What is the problem? If we're not having fun, if we're feeling stressed and burned out, what's, what's going on? Why is it we can't say like Jesus, I would rather do this than eat? Okay, can you honestly say that about your job? Can you honestly say, I would rather do this job than eat? I'm, I don't know, I'm not sure if I'm there yet because I really like eating. I like my job, but I really like eating. I, I want to know why I can't do both. That's what I, I want to do my job and eat. Um, well, there's a couple, there's many reasons why this could be true. Let me go through a couple. One problem is that it could very well be that we're really not doing God's work. It could be very well that we are working for God, but that's not always the same thing as doing what God's doing. Oftentimes we get ourselves in trouble because we 
get this grand idea of what we're going to do for God. And we have this idea that it's up to us to do the work. And that we've got to do this work and we're going to serve God, we're going to labor for God, we're going to save the world for God. And uh, we're doing it all on our own. And every once in a while we remember to pray and ask God to bless us. Uh, But really, we're not doing His work. We're doing our work. And when you do that, you will always end up being exhausted and discouraged and frustrated. Because, you know, here's here's the bottom line. You can't save yourself. How are you ever going to save somebody else? I can't, I can't fix one of my sins. How could I ever fix it in somebody else's life? I can't get my own life together. How can I help somebody else get their life together? Jesus said, you know, you want to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, get rid of the log in your own eye. If you are trying to do your work because it's your work you're doing for God, give it up. Because it will kill you. Okay, and it won't be effective. It will burn you out. And I've been here many times in my life where I have been stressed out and burned out and on more than one occasion walked away from ministry because it really wasn't God's work. It was mine. And I was doing it to prove something to God, to be a good servant, a good son. Uh, But it wasn't what God called me to. It wasn't God's work. Uh, Second problem, uh, we confuse God's will with urgent needs and demands. We think because there's a need or because there's a crisis or because somebody urgently needs us that it is therefore God's will. Have you ever been there? And you find yourself doing lots of stuff that's, not nece- that's good stuff, important stuff, stuff that is very spiritual, uh, maybe teaching the Bible, maybe doing important mission and ministry. But you never stop to ask, God, is this what you are calling me to do? There are endless needs out there. And if you spend your life constantly being driven by needs around you, you will very quickly burn out. If you don't learn the discipline of stopping and and saying, God, you know, I know there are... The the statistic is there's 1.1 million orphans in Thailand alone. If you feel driven to meet the need of every orphan in Thailand you'll die and you'll orphan your own children okay, in the process. You've got to say, God, what are you calling me to do specifically? What is it that you have sent me to do? Jesus said, my, my, my food is doing the will of him who sent me. And Jesus understood clearly what he had been sent to do. Do you understand clearly what God has sent you to do? Uh, do you know God's gift in you, that he's given, that he's uh, equipped you with? Uh, oftentimes we find ourselves working outside of our area of giftedness, outside of our calling, and really outside of God's will, doing urgent, important, vital things that are important and that are killing us and that are discouraging us and burning us out. Um, Jesus only did his Father's will. I love in Mark chapter 1, Jesus does some early miracles in Capernaum shortly at at the beginning of his ministry, and uh, he's out one morning praying. His disciples are frantic because people in the city want Jesus and they have plans for his life. Plans to build churches and do crusades and, and heal people. And Jesus says, I'm done here. We're leaving. And he walks away from all that need and all that urgency because he knows it's not God's will. A third area. 
and perhaps this is the most critical of all. As they were doing the right work, it might even be God's will, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. Uh, the whole principle, and the reason I love this chapter so much, is this, this principle of, of, of living water, this principle of food, that we were designed by God to be hungry people. And I don't mean just hungry for physical food, but God has created within us a hunger in our soul for something. The problem with that and the danger with that hunger that God's created in us is that it's too easy to seek to fill that hunger on junk food, uh, on the things of the world, not on God's presence and God's work. Jesus says, I fill my life with fulfilling God's mission. Okay, here's what this means. Uh, we, can, we can work for the wrong reason. We can do the right work. We can, we can be evangelists preaching the gospel night after night to thousands. But if we do it out of pride for our own glory, in the end it will become to us a burden. It may be effective, and I've seen it. I've seen guys who were um, so consumed with themselves, but they were very good evangelists. And God used them to bring many people to himself, because his word does not return void. When it goes out, it accomplishes its purpose, even if the mouthpiece is an idiot. Okay? But the person doing it finds no joy in it. And eventually, it eats them up. Because it's all about their own glory, and they can never get enough glory. Along comes another evangelist who's more effective, who's more powerful, and they feel jealous, and they feel envious, and they, they, they strive against that. right? And so instead of enjoying the work, it becomes an ambition that they must constantly fight to achieve. Uh, some people do ministry... And they do good things, but the motive is to please people to get their approval. Day by day, they live to please others. And this is a sneaky one, because it almost sounds a lot like love. You know, if I'm living to please people, isn't that the same as loving people? Not really. Not when I please people so that it makes me feel good. So that I can get approval from them. Because what happens is, if they don't approve me, if they take me for granted, if they ignore the sacrifices I made for them, how do we feel? Well, pretty ticked off. And we resent them, right? And we don't enjoy the work because it's not paying the reward that we want, right? Um, we can do it for selfish ambition, trying to serve ourselves or our own interests. Uh, we can do it uh, out of a sense of control, uh, wanting to be in charge of organizations, not to lead them well and to make them instruments for God's use, but because we just want to be in control of everything and because we're not happy unless we're in control and we're unwilling to let God take control and let us just be simple stewards who work for Him. And so if you're in that position, you will worry. You'll be consumed by worry and burden. And you'll, you'll think it's your job to control and run and manage everybody. It will kill you. And you'll end up in the hospital with heart, heart, disease, heart disease and high blood pressure. Uh, see, those are signs and symptoms of people who haven't learned what Jesus is teaching here. He says, I love my job. Partly because of the job, but partly because of it is, it is the sustaining thing in my life. I do it because it fills my life with purpose to serve God. To invest my life in bringing people into his kingdom, and into his truth, into eternal life. There is reward in that. 
Okay, so that's the job, or that's really the, the motivation for the job. Uh, and Jesus describes this job in, in two things. Uh, the, har- the, the planting and the harvest. And he says basically, uh, as he's having this discussion with the disciples, he says, you know, guys, look up. And imagine this. They're on this uh, remote, maybe slight hill across a small valley or some, some mountains, and on, a, on the side up against another mountain, maybe a mile or two away, is Samaria. And, you know, the Samaritan woman's been doing her thing. You know, she's out. She's discovered the joy of this work. And she is excited. She is an evangelist. She is proclaiming Christ. And uh, out comes this pouring of people. Just the stream of people come out from the village. And Jesus says, look up. The harvest is ready. You say there's four months between the planting and the harvest, but I tell you, the harvest is here. It's ready. And you look up, and here come these people streaming out of the city. And the disciples are thinking, what in the world is going on? These people flocking out here to see Jesus. There's two parts to make this happen. There is, first of all, the planting, and and then there is the harvest. Uh, The principle is here that you must plant before you harvest. Now, Jesus makes it clear that their role primarily is one of harvesters. And he says to them, you guys are lucky. You guys are blessed because you get to harvest a crop that somebody else planted. You get to enjoy the fruit of somebody else's labor. But the reality is that there still has to be somebody sowing the seed. Uh, there will never be a harvest where there's been no planting. My family, this is back when we lived in the United States, we lived in the mountains in, a, in an area where it was very difficult to grow things. Uh, very high elevation. The, the growing season was about six weeks long. And really, you can't grow much in six weeks, especially when it's really cold. But I was determined to grow stuff. And so the way this would work every year, my, and my family still mocks me about this. It gives me a hard time. But every year, um, I would have to wait till the last possible day to, to plant or, or it would frost and kill everything. And that was usually, in this part of Colorado, about the second week of June. Like, like by, by this time, people in like, the south have been harvesting tomatoes for six months, you know. And I'm just now planting. And, and if I didn't, if I waited another week or two, it was too late. So the way this seemed to work out every year is that uh, after church on Sunday, uh, about the middle of June, we would be ready to go on vacation. And I would have to do one small task before we left. And that was plant the garden. Uh, because if we go on vacation for a week, when you come back, it's too late. So my family would be waiting in the car impatiently, ready to go on some 900-mile road trip while I'm out planting the garden, right? And it really made them angry, and they were not always real patient with me. But I had to plant because if you don't plant in August, there's no harvest. Same principle is true here. You must plant if you're going to get a harvest. The interesting thing here is who, who planted? Well, there's, there's a number of people who were planting who had been sowing. Uh, they, they knew Abraham. They were descendants of Jacob. They had the Old Testament, at least the first five books. Uh, for hundreds of years, the prophets like Isaiah had been prophesying against the kingdom of the north. Many prophesies had been delivered against them. Most recently, just very near there, John the Baptist had been teaching and baptizing, proclaiming the truth. Now Jesus comes and Jesus proclaims the truth to this woman. This woman goes into the city and she witnesses to the truth. And instantly, people come flocking out to hear Jesus. 
And it says that they believed because of the testimony of this woman that he could be the Messiah. Um, there are many sources of harvesting. Um, let me say this. In, in, in the Asian context, some of those sources aren't there. And uh, while the focus on this passage is definitely on the harvesting, we need to be very strategic as well about planting. Uh, when we are working in an area where there is no Old Testament, there is no concept of God, in Jesus' discussion with this lady, it's clear that she understands a lot about who God is. She understands the importance of worshiping this God. We're in a context where that's not necessarily true. And as we work, uh, we can't jump right to the harvest. We have to be strategic about planting uh, the seed. What is the seed? Well, it's, it's clearly the Word, sowing the Word of truth. Uh, all of these had been witnesses to the Word. In fact, it's interesting, as the village comes out, uh, they beg Jesus, will you stay with us and teach us? And for two days, Jesus stays in this village, and he teaches them the Word. And at the end of those two days, they say, you know, initially we believe because of the witness of this woman, but now we believe on our own because of Jesus' message, because of the word that he has proclaimed to us. Uh, we, need to, we need to realize that in, in Asia, where people have not received the word before, we need to be sowing the word, the gospel truth, uh, the word, both Old and New Testament, of who God is as creator God. Um, and we need to let that word be planted in their hearts before there will be a harvest. Um, Jesus then says, he says that, that, that he says, you will, uh, he says, you know the, the saying, one person plants, someone else harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you did not plant. Others have already done the very hard work, and you will enjoy the fruit of their labor. Um, I really believe that most of the work, while there is some sowing involved, that most of the work, most of the labor, really belongs ultimately to God. And this is where sometimes we get ourselves burned out and stressed out and overworked, is we forget that principle. When we plant seed, there is a season of planting, but the majority of the growing season, the farmer doesn't really do anything. There's a big difference between farmers and carpenters. Carpenters carry nail bags and nails and hammers and saws, and they go out every day and they actually build the building. A farmer doesn't build the corn plant, doesn't build the wheat. You don't see a farmer out there every day after he plants it, pulling, trying to stretch out the plant, right? You plant it and what happens? Well, you just watch it grow. Who makes it grow? God does. Uh, I really believe ultimately what Jesus is saying here is this. There is a harvest. And God has called us and sent us to be harvesters. But here's the deal. God does 90% of the work. God is the one who by his Holy Spirit must do a work in a person's heart to take that seed that's planted and make it a crop that will one day be harvested into eternal life. We just can't do that. We can bear witness. We can testify. We can share the word. Ultimately, God is the one who must do a work in a person's heart before they can be harvested for his kingdom. Uh, there's great comfort in that, in that we don't have to kill ourselves saving people. You can knock yourself out planting. You can be very ambitious and aggressive planting the seeds, sowing the word. But don't kill yourself trying to make it grow. It is ultimately God's job. 
It is his work. We get the, the privilege, the benefit, the joy of harvesting his labor, which to me is an amazing thing. And it's what makes this job so great. Uh, when, when God spoke to the people in the Old Testament, he says, I'm going to send you to a promised land, and you're going to get to pick the fruit of orchards that somebody else planted. Really, that's what we're doing. God has sent us out into the world. He says, I am bringing people to myself. All you have to do is go out and pick them. All right? And, and harvest them for eternal life. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you know, being in a football game where somebody has done all the work to get the ball down to the you know, one-inch line, and they've knocked themselves out, and all that's required to, to win the game is to take the ball that one inch, and the coach puts you in. You have, you've been on the bench the whole game. He says, you take the ball the last inch, and you get to be the victor and celebrate the win. Okay, now you better make that one inch count, right? Or you'll be in big trouble. That's what God's done for us. He says, I've given you the privilege of harvesting where you did not plant, where ultimately I have done all the hard work and labor. And then finally, there is the harvest, the job of harvesting. And Jesus says simply, he says, look, look around you. The harvest is ready. The cool thing about the age that we live in is that uh, sowing and harvesting can come very close together. Unlike in Samaria, we don't have to wait a thousand years for that seed to take root. Uh, when, when God's spirit moves, and this is a great illustration of it, the woman goes into Samaria, she tells and bears witness, instantly people come pouring out. Does, does it always happen this way? Well, not always. But it's amazing how it does happen. How God can bring about his harvest when he's ready. It doesn't require long periods of time necessarily. Sometimes it does. But relatively speaking, God, by his spirit, moves quickly. And when he's ready for there to be a harvest, he says, just look around. Wherever you go, there are fields ready. Here's the question. Is God working here in Asia, in Thailand, in this region, bringing people to himself? Absolutely. In this moment, he is working that seed into many hearts and lives. And there is a harvest out there. Uh, now, it's a team group effort. You know, some of you may not speak Thai very well, and you're not going to go out and be harvesting Thai people directly. It's okay. It's a team effort. And if you're part of the team, if somehow you are involved in that mission of bringing in the harvest, uh, you share in its reward. Jesus says uh, there's a reward. There's, there's a paycheck in this job. Okay, if it's not a paycheck, it's not a job, it's a hobby. Okay, the Christian mission we are involved in is not a hobby. It is a job because we get paid for it. And if you're part of the team who's involved in bringing in this harvest, of proclaiming the gospel, bringing people to eternal life, uh, there's a reward for it, an eternal paycheck that we will receive someday. And what's more, he says, there is great joy. It is a job we should enjoy. There should be two great, in this passage, there should be two great sources of joy in our life. One is being filled having our soul filled and refreshed by Jesus himself. Secondly, by giving that life to others. It should be the great joy of our life. And he says simply, you just got to pay attention. You just got to lift up your eyes and see what's around you and be sensitive to opportunities. And really, he says, it's easy work. It is easy work. Uh, and I, I, I can testify to this. I want to close with one cool story. I've told this story before. Uh, two years ago, so most of you probably haven't heard it, so I'm going to share it. 
one of the, it's a great illustration of how God does this harvesting thing and how little we have to do with it and how really easy it can be. Um, many years ago, this is probably about 10 years ago now, uh, I had taken a, a scouting trip for a, a backpack trip I was going to take later in the summer. So it was me I, at the time as a pastor, the director of this camp, and one of the counselors that was going to be going with me on this trip. And our mission was to scout out this area, very, very remote, remote area. We had to take a four-wheel drive vehicle in, uh, about a six-hour drive on this bumpy four-wheel drive road back to the end of the world. Uh, our goal was to spend about three, I think, three or four days up there. It was a miserable trip. It rained, it was freezing cold. Uh, we finally decided, okay, we've scouted enough. We're just cold and miserable. We're going home. And we left actually a day early from our, our original plan, schedule. We get out to our car to leave on our six-hour rough ride, four-wheel drive, drive back over the bumpy road, and our car battery is dead as a doornail. And I mean, we are at the end of this road, at the end of the world. To hike out from where we were would have been days to find, like, civilized life. Um, so we're here thinking, okay, this is really, this is bad. And um, there, there happened to be in the parking lot one other vehicle. Uh, so we knew there was one hope. And uh, we thought, you know, the, who knows where the driver of this vehicle is. He could be anywhere in this wilderness area. But uh, if we could just take the battery out of his car, put it in our, start our car, and then switch batteries back, we could leave and he'd never know. So this is our great plan. We're desperate. So we're figuring out how to try to break into this guy's truck. Um, not, you know, to damage it, just to borrow his battery. And as we're trying to break into this guy's truck, he walks up. And he says, you know, it, this is his exact words, he says, it better be locked. And we're thinking, you know, here we have just offended the one person in, you know, miles and miles that could help us. Well, thankfully, he was very understanding of our situation and gracious, and he actually helped us out. Uh, it proved to be much more difficult. The whole switching the battery thing didn't actually work very well. And um, as it turns out, we, we weren't able to get our car started, but he took us into town and really was a big help to us. Well, in the midst of all this hassling and messing with cars and trying to fix things, uh, this guy began to share with us his story. And uh, he was, had spent the last five days hiking in the mountains because on the very next day, he had a court date because he'd been charged with domestic violence against his wife. And uh, he was at the end of his rope and at the end of his life, at the end of his days. And he had actually contemplated going into the courtroom on the next day with a gun and just shooting everybody. That's how distraught this guy was. And uh, when he discovered that, you know, his truck had been, uh, you know, we had attempted robbery, this preacher, this camp director and camp counselor had tried to break into his truck. He said, in his own words, God sent you to me. And he knew that God wanted to reach him for himself. And, and uh, here's, I mean, talking about easy fruit. Here's this guy who says, my life is a wreck. I'm screwed up. I, I want to kill myself. But instead, God sent you to give me life. Tell me what I need to know. Crazy thing is, if, if, is if this wasn't random enough, you know, if, if our car had started, we'd have, been, we'd have left five minutes before he came out of the woods. You know? uh, if he had come five minutes earlier, he would have left 
and we'd still be there trying to figure out how to get our cars started. You know, if, if that's not crazy enough, to make matters worse, we had come from about 200 miles one direction. He had come from about 200 miles the other direction to this remote spot in the middle of nowhere. I used to live just down the street from where this guy lived. I knew the church. I mean, there was a church just right down the street from where he lived in this other very remote mountain village. Just strange coincidences. Um, we shared the gospel with this guy and were able to... Uh, he came to Christ. I just happened to be going up to my former home a week later. I was able to see him. We took him a Bible. And he bore witness of just the incredible transformation that God had worked in his life. Uh, he was a different person. And I look back on that whole experience and I realized I didn't do anything. I mean, God wanted to save this person. And he took him out to the middle of nowhere, into our path. Uh, I didn't have to find this guy. And, uh, and he made it very obvious. I didn't have to like think, gee, how can I share the gospel with this guy? Okay, it was pretty clear that all you got to do is just tell me how I can believe. Okay, when God wants to save somebody, he works. Amazing thing, as I talked with this guy a week later, visiting with him, come to find out that his wife was a Christian, who had been praying for him for 10 years. And uh, we had been the answer to that prayer. God, God will save people. But the cool thing is, and he could do it without our help, but Jesus says, you know, we get to be co-workers with God in his kingdom. We get to be a part of the amazing joy of harvesting souls for eternity. Someday, uh, for all eternity... This guy will be my, our spiritual... There's three of us, so I don't take sole credit. We, we will be our spiritual son, as it were. And, and we will share that, that joy that he's in, in, the, in the kingdom. God could have done it through a, a million other people, but he allowed me that privilege on that day. Uh, is that the greatest job ever? I think it is. I think it is the greatest job that God has given to us to see people come into his kingdom, to come into eternal life. And as we look at a new year 2008, you know, I pray that as we make our resolutions, as we set goals for our life, as we think about the purpose of our next year, that all of our purpose and goals, all of our mission focuses on that thing of bringing people to Christ, planting the seed, harvesting where God calls us. Let's pray.